I'm Steve and I'm going to be bringing the uh, second reading to you, which is Daniel 4. We're going to be reading the whole chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree drew large and strong and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruits abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals found shelter and the birds lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by the messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, My lord, 
if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing fruit for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds, your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the most high has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my might and power and for the glory of my majesty. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately that what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before.
Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt the glory of the King of Heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, thanks, Steve. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Ollie. I'm one of the ministers of our church. And it's uh, great to be with you today, particularly great to be looking out and seeing a sea of faces, not a sea of masks. So um, praise God that we are able to have no masks at church today. So very thankful for that. Uh, we're continuing our series in Daniel today, Daniel 4. And so it'll be great if you keep your Bible open uh, so you can follow along as we do. It's a big chunk of text. Uh, but as we begin, I'm going to come before God in prayer. So please pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Daniel. We thank you for the timely and the timeless message that it is. As we continue to study it today, uh, may you be at work in our hearts, shaping us into the image of your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. What do you hate? What is it that you just can't stand? For me, and uh, many of you know this already, there's one thing that I just can't stand. It's worse than Melbourne losing in the football. It's worse than getting sunburned on a sunny day. The thing I hate is cheese. I just can't stand the stuff. It is revolting. I hate the smell. I hate the taste. I hate the texture. I hate everything about it. Truly, cheese is a product of the fall. And yes, I'm aware that there's uh, lots of different types of cheese with different flavours. I'm aware of that. I hate them all. And I hate anything that's touched by cheese. So any food that has cheese in it that you can imagine, I hate it. Lasagna, I hate it. Cheesy pastas, I hate them. P even pizza, I hate pizza. I just can't stand cheese. And I wonder, what do you hate? Maybe it's a food for you too. I know one of the guys in my growth group can't stand pineapple. How I feel about cheese, he feels about pineapple. And maybe it's the same for you. Maybe there's a food you hate. Or maybe it's a sporting team. I hate, absolutely hate the English cricket club. And so maybe you're the same. Maybe there's a sporting team that you just can't stand. Or maybe it's something a bit more weighty. For me, I also hate injustice. My blood boils when I see the powerful trampling on the weak, when I see people breaking the law and getting away with it, and maybe you do too. Or maybe you hate lies. You hate it when people don't tell the truth. You hate the pain and the confusion that that causes. You hate the way that lies break down relationships. Maybe you hate lies. Or maybe you hate violence. You hate it when kids bully other kids at school. You hate it when protesters burn and destroy things, when partners use violence against their spouse. Or maybe it's something else. We all have things that we hate. But let me ask you this. What does God hate? Now, that might sound like a strange thing to ask. Maybe you're thinking, well, God doesn't hate anything. But the Bible makes clear that actually there are certain things that God hates. And one of those things is pride. God hates pride. God hates arrogance. God hates a lack of humility. 
Uh, Proverbs 6 talks about this and it says, uh, it says this, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to Him. And then it goes to list seven things that God hates. And number one on that list is haughty eyes. In other words, pride. Those who are puffed up with their own sense of importance. The New Testament talks about it as well, and James 4 talks about how God opposes the proud. God is actively working against them. See, the Bible is clear. God hates pride. And our story today in Daniel 4 is all about that. It's a story about God humbling the most powerful man on earth because of his pride. See, in Daniel 4, we see that God brings down those who lift themselves up, and we see that God lifts up those who bring themselves down. Our story is about King Nebuchadnezzar, and if, if ever a man had a reason to be proud, if ever a man had a reason to lift himself up, it was King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of the greatest nation on earth, a place with incredible culture. They had uh, the Hanging Gardens, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They had incredible scientific achievements, methods for measuring time that are still used today. They had incredible wealth, wealth beyond imagining, wealth plundered from countless nations. In fact, according to one British academic, he says that Babylon reached its greatest peaks under King Nebuchadnezzar. See, King Nebuchadnezzar is powerful and he's prosperous. If ever a person had a reason to be proud, it is this man. And so that's why it's actually so surprising that the chapter starts in the way that it does. Uh, the chapter takes the form of a letter from the king to his people. It's a little bit like when the queen gives her Christmas message or when the prime minister gives a, um, an address to the nation. It's a message from the king to his people. And so what we'd expect is that he'd tell them how great he is as their king. I would expect that he'd tell them how great Babylon is as their nation. But did you see how the letter starts? Have a look at verses 2 and 3. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Did you see that? There's nothing there about how great He is. Nothing about how powerful or wealthy His kingdom is. No, it's all about how great God is. And this would have been so shocking for the people to hear. Their great king, not speaking in pride. And so it begs the question then, how does this happen? And that's the exact question that the rest of the chapter goes on to explain. It shows how King Nebuchadnezzar, one of the greatest kings that's ever lived, and one of the most proud men who's ever lived, was humbled so that he could so humbly point away from himself towards God. And so the bulk of the chapter then starts in verse 4, and King Nebuchadnezzar is sitting at home in his palace. He's contented and he's prosperous. He wasn't searching for God. He didn't feel like he needed Him. And yet, God came searching for him. And it's so often the case with the book of Daniel, God uses a dream to do it. Now remember, for the Babylonians, they saw dreams as a window into the mind of the gods. They saw it as the way that the gods communicated. 
And so when King Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, it terrifies him because he knows that it's important and yet he doesn't know what it means. And so he calls in all of his wise men and tries to get them to explain what the dream means, but uh, of course they can't, as is typical in the book of Daniel. I don't know how they kept their jobs. They never seem to be able to explain anything, but they can't explain what this dream means. And so King Nebuchadnezzar goes to his big guns, to Daniel, the one with the proven track record of being able to interpret them. In fact, did you see how King Nebuchadnezzar describes Daniel here? Have a look at verse 8. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. See, King Nebuchadnezzar knows that Daniel is special and he knows that God speaks through him and he's desperate to know what does this dream mean? Which is fair enough. Imagine knowing that God had a particular message for you Imagine that God had spoken a specific message to you, but you didn't understand it. I mean, what would you feel if that was the case, if that was the situation? Well, of course you'd want to know what it means. Of course you'd want to know, what is God saying? And so this is what King Nebuchadnezzar's feeling. And so finally then, we hear what this dream is, how it is that God's spoken, and it's quite a strange one. In it, there's this great and majestic tree, that's so big that it touches the sky, that it's visible across the whole earth. And not only is it big, it's also beautiful and it's fruitful. It gives enough food, enough fruit for everyone. And it's so wonderful that all the animals and all the birds are able to live under it and to live in it. This is an impressive tree, but it doesn't last because a holy messenger comes down from heaven and says that this tree will be cut down All of the branches will be stripped off, all the fruit scattered, and only the stump will be left. And the stump will be bound with iron and with bronze, kind of like shackles or kind of like handcuffs. Why? Well, so that it can't grow again, so that it's stuck like this. See, this once great tree will be left a pitiful shadow of its former glory but it doesn't stop there because the language then swaps to he, which shows us that the tree is actually a person, that this is talking about a particular person. And this tree, he, will be reduced to living like an animal with a mind to match. Have a look at verse 16. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by him. See, this once mighty and powerful tree reduced to living like an animal. And why is that going to happen? Why is all of that going to happen? Well, verse 17, it's so that everyone will know that God's the one who sets up and removes kings, that He's the sovereign boss. See, it's to make clear to the world that God hates pride and He will bring down anyone who lifts themselves up. And Daniel hears this dream and he's troubled, uh, greatly perplexed. Uh, Not because he doesn't understand it, but actually the complete opposite. He's perplexed because he does understand it and he realizes that this is bad news for King Nebuchadnezzar. And here we actually get the sense that Daniel feels quite fondly of King Nebuchadnezzar. 
He spent a lot of time with him under his leadership. And so he feels quite fondly to him. And he says, King, if only this was about one of your enemies instead. But it's not. It's about King Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel tells him, the tree is you. Verse 22. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. See, Daniel tells him that just like, that he's the tree, but just like the tree in the dream, he'll be cut down. He'll be reduced to living like an animal in the fields. See, it's such an ominous warning. This great king who rules over such a great empire will have everything stripped away, including his humanity, until he's left like as nothing but an animal, wallowing in the dirt. Imagine that. Imagine being told that everything, your house, your job, your family, your bank accounts, even your own mental faculties would be taken away. What a, cr- what a crushing blow it would be but all's not lost, because in the midst of it, there's still hope. Daniel tells him, repent and humble yourself. Get rid of your pride. And Daniel tells him, if you do that, then God might spare you. And it's a wonderful glimpse into the character of God, because God does hate pride, and God will destroy pride wherever he finds it, and God will bring down those who lift themselves up but he's also gracious, he's also merciful. He gives King Nebuchadnezzar an opportunity to repent and humble himself. God hates pride. And I'm sure as we hear that message, that God brings down the proud, our hearts cheer. After all, like God, I suspect that most of us hate pride. Particularly as Australians, we hate those who are proud. We hate it when someone always boasts about themselves and always tells us how great they are. And we hate it when people arrogantly look down on others and think of themselves as better. And so we love to hear that God will bring down the proud. But as I was thinking about it and reflecting on it, I realized that as much as I hate pride, as much as I hate the pride out there, actually, pride so often lives inside of me as well. So often I find myself doing a humble brag. I don't know if you know what that is. A humble brag is when you say something that appears uh, quite modest and self-depreciating, but actually you're saying it to bring attention to something you're quite proud of. Or sometimes I find myself looking at others, I'm feeling a little bit superior, thinking to myself, I could have done that better than they've done that. It's a subtle thing, but at its heart is pride. Or even the most insidious one, uh, when I realize that I struggle with pride, I feel a little bit proud about that. Because only those with something to be proud of would struggle with pride, of course. And I wonder whether you can resonate with that as well. Because inside of each of us is pride. It might look different for every single one of us, but don't be fooled, it is there. C.S. Lewis, the famous author, uh, talks about pride, um, and this is what he says... Uh, He says this, uh, there's one vice, there we go, there's one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else. 
and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. The vice I'm talking of is pride. See, as much as we might hate pride in others, it's inside of us too. See, we may not be like King Nebuchadnezzar with a great and powerful kingdom, but we can still be mini King Nebuchadnezzars, proud of our own mini kingdoms, proud of all that we've achieved, proud of all that we are. And Daniel 4 reminds us, God hates pride and God will bring down those who lift themselves up. And he warns King Nebuchadnezzar here. And he warns us too. God says, either you deal with it, or I'll deal with it. Either you humble yourself and do away with pride, or I'll humble you and do away with your pride. See, the warning is there, and the choice is clear. And so the question is, will you heed the warning? For King Nebuchadnezzar, he hears the warning, he hears it so loudly and so clearly from Daniel. And so what would you expect that he'd do? Surely he'll repent and humble himself, right? But that's the problem with pride. Even when it's pointed out to us, it's still so difficult to combat. Because did you see what happens then in verses 28 to 30? Have a look with me. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power, and for the glory of my majesty. See, God's given King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to repent, to fix himself, to humble himself. And did he do it? No. He stands up on his palace and he looks out on his kingdom and he's filled with pride. He thinks, how great am I? See, there's not a hint of humility, not a hint that he's taken on this warning at all. And it reminds us that a warning isn't enough. It's not enough to just hear the warning. We need to listen to the warning as well. Because God hates pride and God will bring down those who lift themselves up. And that's exactly what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar. Instantly, a voice comes from heaven and it says, what happened in the dream will happen to you. And it does. Immediately. The time for warnings is done and now is the time for humbling. Have a look at verse 33. Immediately, what had been said about King Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. See, it happens exactly like God said it would. God hates pride. And so he brings down King Nebuchadnezzar. All of King Nebuchadnezzar's pomp and wealth, all of his comfort and status, even his very humanity is taken away as God humbles him and he crawls around in the dirt like an animal. See, that's what the proud have coming. God hates pride and God will judge it. Now, sometimes that takes the form of what it does here, that is, God works in the active time here and now to bring judgment on those who are proud. We see that in the Bible quite a lot. Uh, for example, King Uzziah in Second Chronicles chapter 26, he's one of the kings of Israel or Judah. 
and he basically is filled with pride. He thinks he's so great. And so God humbles him. He gives him leprosy, and he had leprosy until the day he died. See, sometimes God judges in the here and the now to humble us. And while that's terrible, there's actually a far worse judgment coming, though, for the proud, a way that no negative adjective can do justice to. See, God will judge the proud, those who have refused to bow the knee to Him on Judgment Day. Those who refuse to acknowledge that God is King and they are not, will face judgment. An eternity of separation from God, the source of everything good and pure in this world. Because God says the only way to have a relationship with Him is to bow the knee to Him, to acknowledge that He's King to humble ourselves and recognize that we're not good enough for Him and we need Him to save us. But for any who are too proud to do that, then there's judgment waiting. And so the question then is this, have you bowed the knee to God? Have you in humility accepted that you are not good enough for God and that you need Him to save you? God is saying to you, either you deal with your pride or I'll deal with it. Either you humble yourself and do away with pride or I'll humble you and do away with your pride through judgment. God brings down those who lift themselves up. But God is also merciful and God lifts up those who bring themselves down, those who humble themselves. Because after some time has passed... King Nebuchadnezzar finally humbles himself. He lifts his eyes towards heaven. In other words, he takes his eyes off the earth and what he thinks is his and instead looks up to God. Uh, We know what that's like. Often professional sportsmen, when they do something good, uh, they'll point to heaven or they'll look up to heaven. And at least originally, it was meant to be a symbol that shows this is because of God, to give glory to God, to acknowledge God. And so that's kind of like what's going on here. Finally, King Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges God. And did you see what happens next? Instantly, his sanity is restored. God has mercy on him and lifts him up. And then did you see King Nebuchadnezzar's response? He praises God. It's quite an amazing song. It's one that wouldn't feel out of place in the book of Psalms. And so, have a look at verses 34 and 35. The Most High's dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, what have you done? He says, God is the true King and no one can hold Him back. No one can rival His strength or his power. It's a little bit like playing with kids. I love playing with Cassie's six-year-old niece at her family's place. And one of the things she likes to do with me is try and hold down my hand. So she'll grab, put both of her hands there and try and hold down my hand. But of course, she's a six-year-old girl. She can't hold down my hand. It's so easy for me to lift it up. It's not even a contest. And in a sense, that's what it's like with God. We're nothing compared to God. We can't even hold down God's hand, let alone do something else to Him. And, in, and so then, how can we be proud? If that's how minor we are, if that's how powerless and weak 
how insignificant we are compared to God, then how can we be proud? And see, God has brought King Nebuchadnezzar to this realisation that God is king and God is powerful. And so, having then recounted the tale of his humbling and ultimately of his conversion, because I think that's what this chapter shows amazingly, stunningly, it shows us that King Nebuchadnezzar became one of God's people. And so, therefore, he ends this chapter, this letter, with a final word of praise. In one sense, verse 37 sums up the whole thing. Did you see what it says? Have a look at verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything He does is right and all of His ways are just. And those who walk in pride, He is able to humble. If you want to take away summary verse, this verse is it. See, God is the true King and He hates pride. He hates it more than I hate cheese. He hates it more than I hate the English cricket club. He hates it even more than we might might hate lying or stealing or violence. And so he can and he will humble any who walk in pride. But for those who bring themselves down, for those who do away with pride, then God lifts them up. And so that's the message of Daniel 4. God brings down those who lift themselves up and God lifts up those who bring themselves down. And it's so clear to us, we must do away with pride. And if we're honest with ourselves, then we all know we struggle with pride, either outrightly in what we say and what we do, or in our hearts, in what we think and in what we feel. And so the question then is, how do we combat it? How do we combat pride? How do we do away with pride? And I've got uh, three pieces of advice for you for how to deal with pride. The first is look at the gifts. The second is look to the giver. And the third is look to the cross. See, the first key to combating pride is to look to the gifts. Because that's where we're likely to feel tempted about pride. In general, we don't feel pride about those things we're not good at. I don't feel pride about my singing ability uh, because it's non-existent. I regularly tell the sound guys, keep me on mute while the songs are on, otherwise the whole church will be empty by the time I come up here. See, I'm not good at singing, I don't feel tempted to feel proud about singing because I just know I'm not good at it. But I'm all right at public speaking. That's a gift that God's given me. And so it means that that is something I need to be on guard about because pride often strikes in the gifts. And so then, what are the gifts that God has given you? Maybe it's a sharp mind or a loving family. Maybe it's a successful career or a thriving business. Maybe it's a musical ability or a particular ministry talent. Look at them and be on guard because that's likely where pride will strike for you. And so that's the first step to combating pride. Look at the gifts and be on guard. And once you've done that, then turn your eyes past the gifts to the giver. Because by definition, gifts are just that. They're gifts from a giver. See, everything that we're tempted to be proud about is a gift from the giver, a gift from God. Public speaking, that's a gift. A thriving business, that's a gift. 
A sharp mind, that's a gift. Successful kids, that's a gift. They're all gifts given by our gracious God. And if that's the case, then how can we be proud about them? We can't be proud about gifts, that's not how gifts work. If you walked out of here today and someone came and gave you a car, you wouldn't boast about it saying, look what I did. But you could be thankful to them. And so when we're tempted to pride, we look to the giver and we're thankful. Uh, one of my friends was telling me about his mum. And so uh, he spent quite a lot, he spent his whole lifetime working as a minister. He's been at a number of different churches. And from one of the churches that he was at, someone came and met his mum. And they said to his mum, oh, you must be so proud of your son. And do you know what she said? No, I'm not proud, but I am thankful for him. And isn't that great? She's looking to the giver. She's recognised that she has nothing to be proud of because it's a gift. And so instead, she's thankful. And so the next time pride tries to creep in, look to the giver. And instead of being proud, be thankful. Be thankful for the gift of good health. Be thankful for the gift of your children. Be thankful for the gift of a successful career. Be thankful. And then ultimately, the ultimate solution for combating pride is to look to the cross. Because that's the greatest gift of all. The gift of God's Son who died in our place so that pride might be dealt with. Because that's what it took to defeat pride. God's Son. And so it's at the cross that we find the forgiveness for our pride, where all of our shame and our guilt of our pride is washed away, where we're made clean. And it's at the cross that we get a fresh start, empowered by the Holy Spirit, who gives us power to say no to pride and yes to humility. And so when we're feeling down, when we're feeling defeated, when we're feeling overwhelmed by pride, then we can look to the cross, the ultimate solution. God hates pride and God will humble any who walk in it. But for those who in humility cling to the cross, then there's hope and there's victory. And one day God will raise us up to be with Him. I'm going to pray about this, please. Ah, pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the reminder that Daniel 4 is that you hate pride. We ask that you would be at work in our hearts, convicting us of this, reminding us of it, and giving us the weight of the warning that this passage gives us. And uh, we pray we do find it difficult to combat pride and to work against it. So we ask that you would help us, that you would give us humility, you would help us not to think too highly of ourselves. And so we pray for your help in this sense. But we do thank you as well that for those who in humility humble themselves and cling to the cross, we thank you that you lift us up, that there is hope, that you have defeated pride in your son Jesus. And so we thank you for the way that he died in the place we deserve to die. And we pray that every day we would reflect on that and remember that and that would bring us to humility. So Father, we thank you for the cross and the solution that it is to pride. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.